Good afternoon and welcome to the 199th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of political crisis in the pandemic with historian Julian Zelliser. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. at, East, 5, at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 11th, 2021, there are 1,940,593 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 22,529,399 cases reported in the United States. And as of today, there are 375,350 deaths in the United States from COVID-19, and that's up from 367,143 reported on Friday. Uh, we'll read a couple of obituaries later on in the show. I'd actually like to jump right in with my guest today. I'm very eager to welcome him back, and he agreed to come on a very short notice to talk about the politics of this week. I want to introduce Julian Zelizer. He's the Malcolm... Stevenson Forbes, class of 1941, professor of history and public affairs, Woodrow Wilson School and Princeton University. He's the author and editor of 19 books on American political history, including Governing America, The Revival of Political History, and The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and The Battle for the Great Society. Most recently, he co-authored with Kevin Cruz, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, and he's published over 900 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. Julian Zelliser, thanks a lot for coming back on COVID Calls. Thanks for having me with you. Uh, just, uh, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and uh, as a return guest, you were one of the first guests I talked to back on April 3rd, and uh, at that time, there were 6,699 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. Um, it didn't feel any less urgent to me then than it does now, but it feels like 10 years ago since I, since I spoke with you. And uh, just like I usually do, if I could just find out from you where you're calling from now and what the pandemic situation is there today. I'm in uh, Sag Harbor, New York, and I've been back and forth between here and New York City. Uh, and, you know, in New York City, it, it is not anywhere close to over, it's surging. Uh, it feels calmer than it did when we first spoke. Uh, only in that it's somewhat uh, contained and that there's mechanisms in place to deal with it. But I think it's this weird mix we're in at this moment in history with, on the one hand, some optimism and excitement about the vaccines and their implementation. But on the other hand, uh, uh, more uh, bleak sense that it's unclear when this ends and when those take effect and that we're living with this new normal. Uh, so that's the situation where I've been um, and where I am now. Well, I was so eager to speak with you in light of um, this political time that we're living in. Were you watching 
on January 6th? I was. I was actually in the morning. I was filming something uh, for CNN, not a live show. And so I left right as it started and I was watching on my phone uh, as this unfolded. And as much as I have seen and as bad as I know things can get, it was really shocking, but more importantly, too, just disturbing and horrifying to watch as it unfolded and, and to clearly see where it was all going pretty early on. You know, historians are always um, trying to put together historical analogies um, as the present unfolds. I know I was trying to do that with my kids that day. And honestly, I was grasping. I don't know what was going through your mind. What sorts of historical reference points were you thinking about as you watched the events unfold that afternoon? There, there really wasn't anything. Obviously, a lot of historians have written about how white vigilante, vigilante mobs have been part of American history and white violence with right wing extremism is something we obviously saw in Jim Crow South and other parts of the country. But that was there, but for me, it was the combination of this crowd and everything the president and many Republican leaders had done going into this, basically setting up this moment. And that combination is not something I can think of anything comparable. It's not the War of 1812, uh, and it's not other violence that has happened in Congress itself. Uh, this was a presidentially incited attack against the other branch of government, and there's no other way to describe it, and I can't think of anything like that. Well, you're a close student of uh, presidential language, and I've heard President Trump incite at many different moments and inveigh mm -hmm. against enemies um, uh, throughout this pandemic and throughout his presidency. But do you... Did you hear anything after the election up to January 6th that you felt was somehow different from Trump or from members of his administration in terms of actually calling people to some actions? Well, I think uh, for me, it was reading about the formation of these groups online, uh, which you could read about at the time, this uh, Stop the Steal organization. And a lot of these groups that were planning for January 6th. The basis of their grievance was this idea that the vote was stolen from day one, you know, before anything had really even emerged. And the president was not saying attack, um, but he was fueling this idea every day on his Twitter feed. And then he started to promote this gathering, uh, not infrequently. And that's a pretty big promotion when you put it on the, on the Twitter page of the president and call on people to go and it will be wild. Uh, and then, you know, finally the day of for him to be there uh, and, and say, go to the Capitol, he doesn't really need to do more when I'm sure he understood exactly the kind of crowd that had gathered. And today we're learning more in the press that, you know, people were posting pictures of themselves with weapons on the way over. Uh, so this wasn't a big mystery what was going on and the risks involved. And so, uh, you know, this this was inciting uh, and inciting a dangerous crowd. Well, we've had to rely on um, journalists and many, many different social media feeds uh, and precious little uh, readout from federal agencies at this time. Are you surprised by that? I am. Uh, I mean, I was surprised on the day of 
at how this happened. Anyone who's been to the Capitol or been to Washington, especially since 9-11, realizes there is a lot of security in that city. It is a heavily armed city at this point. So first, I just didn't understand why there was a lack of response that seemed kind of obvious at the time. But yeah, since then, we're relying on bits and pieces of video and audio feed, not a lot from government agencies. And, and I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, there, there's a range from conspiratorial arguments that the president has stifled all of this from day one to just disorganization and a kind of level of chaos in Washington that also explains it. We will find out, but we're not getting the information from the most important source. Well, it's it's felt like an, a really eerie silence in in so many ways. And like you describing, I mean, I was talking to my wife as things were unfolding. I said, I'm not sure I've ever been on the steps of the Capitol. I mean, maybe before 9-11, but it's so I've gotten so used to the militarization of the Capitol that you're just not going to get close to those buildings unless you have an invitation to come inside. So many startling things. Just explaining even that seems like we're we're nowhere with understanding right now. No, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, there's big holes in what happened that we're going to have to fill in. And uh, this isn't a city that's just guarded by a few police barely armed. <laughs> it's just not how the city works yeah. anymore. Even getting into these buildings is is tough. And and there's usually uh, on a normal day guards with machine guns and heavily armed. So so I we'll we'll see what happened. It's also just hard to explain to younger people who I think are numbed in some ways that, okay, this is another crazy thing that happened that uh, an insurrection against Congress with the president behind it is totally abnormal, dangerous, and not part of our repertoire of American history. And I worry that people kind of move on to the next story on this. I, that's, um, you know, to connect that back to the pandemic, to me seems really crucial at this time because we've been moving past norms and expectations with such speed that commentators can barely keep, not to mention historians and analysts. And so this sense of what's normal or can be expected um, is constantly shifting and the ground under our feet feels very uncertain. I, I just, I want to, with that in mind, I want to ask you, I mean, you've been so prolific in this time characteristically and really great piece up January 8th on CNN.com. Everybody should check it out. But you wrote, if Congress overlooks the failed insurrection without taking any kind of stand, it will leave a huge gaping hole in the historical record when it comes to checking the executive office. So you're calling for a second impeachment, which is a form of, of grounding and saying, well, we've transgressed a norm here. We got to stop and, and take stock. Now that was written on the 8th. So may as well have been two months ago, I suppose. But Say a little bit, if you will, about your thinking there and what what could be achieved by a second impeachment. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a broken norm and it's a dangerous broken norm. There's there's different kinds of norms we've seen erode, and and this was worst of all. And so part of it is is immediate, and it's to say that the president, the sitting president, can't just do this, and that there's no. Uh, forceful reaction from Congress, that this violates the abuse of power to that person, that it should be part of the historical record of this particular president. Uh, and second, it is about the presidency itself. And obviously, it's likely the next president, uh, Biden, and whoever succeeds Biden won't do something like this again. 
but if Congress does nothing, if there's a silence from the institution, which doesn't look like there will be, uh, you do uh, kind of create more room to do stuff like this. That was the argument behind impeachment one. Uh, if you look at Congressman Schiff's closing words, it was there's no reason to trust the president. There's no reason based on what happened to believe that he would follow the rules of the election. And here we are. That's exactly what happened. So I think it's quite urgent. And, and this goes well beyond that phone call and the efforts with Ukraine. Uh, again, as we started by saying, there's nothing like this. This was a literal attack, not on the building, also on the legislators. Uh, and the more we learn, the more uh, we hear about how serious the risk was to Speaker Pelosi, to Vice President Pence on that very dark day. So I think Democrats should go on the record. And finally, I think Republicans should be forced to go on the record. If they want to vote no, they should have to do that formally and say this is okay. And so if I'm understanding the timing right, the earliest this could come up before the Senate would be the 19th. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the, go ahead, but I was sort of curious, like what's the, what's, what happens with an impeachment vote after a president has left office? Another, another unprecedented thing, right? Yeah, I mean, well, part of what's happening right now is is there might be a, an effort to pressure the vice president into invoking the 25th Amendment or creating some sort of pressure on President Trump, who doesn't usually uh, bend to pressure to resign in the next few days with a real sense of instability in Washington at this point. I think that's genuine. Uh, and in the middle of this pandemic and the rollout of the vaccine. But uh, experts, many experts are in agreement. Uh, more than I thought, actually, that you could certainly complete the process of an impeachment after the sitting president is gone. There's nothing prohibiting that. Uh, there's president, a precedent with one cabinet official. Uh, and so the Senate could take this up either after the inauguration or even after that. The House can send this to the Senate anytime. There'll be some who dispute that. Alan Dershowitz, uh, who is promising to represent the president, has said you can't do that. But many very respected conservative and liberal scholars say there's no reason that can't be done. They also, the Senate, can uh, disqualify the president from holding federal office again. And given the situation and what happened, that's not an insignificant decision that the Senate would, would have to make. So that would be quite extraordinary. And as you say, it would be also um, nothing's apolitical in that sense, even after he's left office, getting the votes on the record is also looking ahead to 2022 Senate races and to the next presidential election, right? I mean, otherwise we may not know what senators, where they stand on this. That's exactly right. The only way to really get legislators and know what they say is making them vote on things. Right. That is why the vote is so great. Speeches are speeches. Yeah. Uh, but when they have to put that, you know, decision on the line and put it in the historical record, that's really different. And so now a lot of Republicans are telling reporters they're disturbed by what happened or they're separating themselves from the president. But that would be a real decision point. And I think, uh, you know, we can assume many Republicans in the end won't go along with that. Uh, but you don't know as these processes unfold, they they take on a life of their own. So. Um, we will see, but but I I really firmly believe in this case, and there's a group of historians that I saw has just circulated a letter saying there's an urgency, even though we're only days away from this presidency ending. 
I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Julian Zelizer today about political crisis and the pandemic. So Julian, I wanna get your perspective now sort of broadening out to talk about this, this pandemic. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess I don't, I don't wanna force you to speculate too much, but I'm really curious about the connection you see between the pandemic and what happened January 6th. And maybe everything that's happened since the election mm -hmm. up to now because as you said, Trump's, some subset of Trump's hardest core followers have been motivated throughout that time. And I'm, I'm, I think we're gonna need more time to get the full picture, but I'd like to hear sort of a first take from you. I mean, is January 6th possible in a non-pandemic year? What do, you, what do you see as a correlation between those two? That's interesting. I mean, I, I was thinking of what's the effect of all of this on our pandemic policy, but uh, is it possible? I think it is. I mean, a lot of the anger and outrage, a lot of right-wing organizations, extreme right militia organizations that were part of this, they've been around for a long time. I mean, if uh, historians remember Oklahoma City in 1995, and these groups were there, the FBI said they're, they're growing. There's a, a expansion of these organizations. And Trump, before the pandemic, the administration diminished funds for the FBI going after these groups. So I could imagine this happening without the pandemic. Certainly, the pandemic has fueled a sense of both uh, distress and rage uh, throughout the country. And, and it fuels you in different ways. I mean, for, for some people, they're saddened. For some people, they're inspired to do good. But for angry groups, I think... Uh, it, it has uh, angered them not only in that it's happening, but how they hear Democrats responding to it. And they see lockdowns and social distancing somehow as yet another attack on them. It's an extension of political correctness. This is just a new, a new form of that. Um, but in terms of the other part of the relationship, I, th I think this has been really a significant month since the election. One, it's wasted time. Uh, you know, time is the most valuable commodity in politics. And here we are, right, as the vaccines broke and the rollout had to be put into place. And the administration was just not focused on this. They were focused on this election challenge. That's where the White House's head was. And so we have lost a month right now, in addition to dealing with the surge uh, that I think is going to be in the long term very significant as we look at a gap of, of time. Second, the, the kind of lack of any federal coordination right now uh, on either the vaccine or dealing with the surge in the states, it's reflected by the chaos in, in the White House. Uh, there is no guidance. There's just no guidance on, on what to do and how to do this. And it's costing us. I think it's going to cost us many, many lives uh, and, you know, social uh, connections and deaths. And finally, the, the people who gathered there and, and stormed the gates uh, really believed everything the president was saying. I mean, they were uh, part of this new information ecosystem filled with conspiracy theories and disinformation and lies. And, and that's a problem. I think it's been a problem in our attempt nationally to deal with this, uh, to deal with this pandemic, and so at all three levels, I, I saw a lot of connections with what was going on. Mm. That, let me follow up with that. I mean, you wrote on December nineteenth, you were sort of at that point thinking about what a Biden team will be able to accomplish, and you wrote, "I'm mean, asked the question: Is there anything Biden can do to break through the political situation?" And the answer you wrote lies in crushing the COVID nineteen pandemic 
with two health challenges, um, which was focused on containing the virus and also rolling out the vaccine. And I wonder, so in light, again, of what's happened here, even in these, this last week with the politics, does that get easier now somehow for the Biden team? Do they have a stronger mandate to have a coordination in government? Maybe some votes in Congress that might've been hesitant to get on board with Biden will be now? Or is the Republican party in such disarray at this point that you can't even see into your crystal ball on that? Well, I'm not someone who is uh, very optimistic you'll see any major change in the Republican party. I think this is exactly what a majority of the party is, but I do think it might help uh, President-elect Biden gained some momentum in that even for the Republican Party that is comfortable in, in this place, it's going to put them on the defensive. It, it gives Biden an opportunity in terms of the perception of how the public sees him of being a leader, of taking command of a broken situation. And, and that matters a lot. Uh, combined with where we were two weeks ago, where it was already clear that nothing was moving on 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 this uh, on this crisis we're facing. So I think he has a lot of um, potential. And the key thing he has to do it's an implementation challenge. Meaning, uh, the scientific breakthrough has happened. We know it has to happen to at least try to contain the surge, or we generally know. And this is about an administration working with the states to guide them, uh, in addition to production of of vaccines at a more rapid rate. Uh, and, and that's doable. And my article said, if you can do that in the next, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a big hundred days. I think people are imagining something very unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, if he can do that between now and say September, and you start to see some relief from this, uh, fever that we're in, literally, uh, I think he's going to be in pretty strong standing come, come the fall. So that's, that's the only way to, to break through and put some pressure on Republicans. Do we have more historical analogies to work with there than we had for January 6th? I mean, when we think about a president coming into a crisis and taking action, and we chatted a bit about this back in April, um, mm -hmm. but I wonder what's in your mind now as sort of like helping people understand what is possible for a federal government when it's managed adequately. Sure, I mean, the, the two classic examples for sure, FDR uh, comes in a just horrendous situation, a bottom has fallen out economy, with desperation everywhere in this country. And he moves with the Democratic uh, Congress at a furious pace to first deal with immediate issues, such as the banking crisis and unemployment and public works needs. And then he eventually was able to move on. He got stronger. Uh, he does pretty well, the Democrats do, in the 34 midterms. They don't face the backlash presidents usually face. And then he moves to issues like Social Security and other kinds of programs that weren't directly related, but just as important. And Lyndon Johnson, who, whose presidency obviously ends terribly, uh, the first thing he does when coming into office is push the civil rights bill that had been in the House. And he says, mm -hmm. that's gonna you know, uh, open the doors to much more. And that was his entire focus. He moves it through the Senate and to signature. This is the law desegregating public accommodations in the South. And then he does very well in his reelection. That's a key to why he does so well. And he has the Great Society, which is a wide range of programs that wouldn't have been possible had he not solved crisis number one. So there's lots of ways in which you could imagine Biden having a similar uh, experience, especially since he's coming into office post-vaccine right. uh, discovery. 
fascinating to think about that and then to imagine a, a minority leader, McConnell, somehow changing his stance by the summer towards the administration and looking for common ground in legislation. Uh, I got to say, over McConnell's tenure, I don't see a lot that gives me hope there, but the scenario you just sketched out, the historical scenario, makes me think about that a little bit. Absolutely. McConnell is someone who is uh, dead set on opposing everything right now. But, you know, if we're in a summer where people are living somewhat more normally and the rate of death is diminishing and the economy is starting to pick up and Biden throws to Congress another major, a real stimulus bill, not a Band-Aid bill, but a stimulus bill, it's getting very hard for McConnell to say no. Uh, and, and that's how you can move legislators, not for goodwill, but for self-interest. So Trump is going to go one way or the other, and the Republican Party is going to have to make some hard decisions. But I want to come back to some of the reporting I heard, interviews I've done, uh, I've heard, um, and I'm going to get to talk with Representative Houlihan tomorrow from Pennsylvania about this. Uh, these representatives who literally are huddling on the on the floor of the House, and um, among their colleagues who then reconvened and still voted against. Uh, accepting the electors, and now we find out that there were COVID exposures on the floor. Can you say a little bit about the precedent for healing animosity in the House? I mean, these people have to work together. There's a lot of them that they don't always agree. They rarely do. Fine. But this goes to another level of breach of trust, it seems. It does. And, and there's even more reports, and, and I don't know if they're substantiated about some members who are giving information to the groups about where offices were and stuff like that. I don't know if that's true. We'll find out more. Again, we're dealing with bits and pieces of stories, but it's hard. I mean, the, the tensions and the divisions were so great already between the parties. This will only make it worse. There's not a lot of precedent uh, for for big healing moments uh, in Congress. Sometimes crisis has that effect, uh, but, but often it doesn't. After the Civil War, you know, partisanship intensified in Washington. After 9-11, we saw a similar situation. So I don't really think the, the temperature is going to change, and it, it could get worse, and it probably will get worse after this. There, there's just, because there's nothing like it, because the threat was so real to people, people will not forget what just happened. So does that mean um, we're going to see fewer co-sponsored bills? Is the middle, such as it was, going to disintegrate for a little while? Or uh, because it just has felt, I mean, this pandemic has revealed polarization at so many levels, which you were discussing earlier. I really worry that the you know representatives, particularly, who have found some way to work across the aisle, there's going to be strong disincentive for doing that at this point. There will be. I mean, the only thing that works against that is the 2018 class of Democrats contain many, many moderates, and they have great strength right now in the caucus. Biden leans toward them rather than to the progressive wing of the party. And if you kind of lower your expectations of bipartisanship, meaning just a handful of Senate Republicans is enough 
to show some progress, you might get that. I, I don't. I think senators, Senator Romney, for example, is quite bitter with his own party and is going to go overboard to make deals right now uh, to show he's a bit different. Maybe Senator Murkowski and a couple others. Uh, and if we say that's enough, well, then I could imagine some kind of bipartisanship happening, even in a pretty toxic atmosphere. Is Senator Murkowski leaving the Republican? I guess she already kind of left the Republican Party, but is she really leaving the Republican Party, you think? I don't know. I, I'll see. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> okay. Well, we're almost up on time. Um, I, I just want to get you know, sort of one question from you. I know asking historians to predict the future is not really fair, but but we still have to get through this next week and yep. the inauguration. So what are you watching for? Again, with an eye towards history, but also just where are you getting information, who you're listening to, to try to understand if we're expecting to see violence? I know we're all hoping things are gonna calm down, but maybe just sketch us out your sort of um, information ecosystem for the next week as we, as we go forward. Well, I'm very worried. I mean, there's a story in the Washington Post right now uh, by a very good reporter who just put out a story that the FBI is expecting and hearing great threats of violence, not just on Inauguration Day, but between now and a few days after the inauguration. There are threats coming from militia groups uh, that if the 25th Amendment is invoked, there'll be an uprising. Uh, and some, the Washington Monument is going to be closed because of these fears for several weeks. So uh, I'm following all these stories because I think we can't discount them. Uh, I don't have good information on what the federal government is doing to prepare. Uh, I'm hoping there's more preparation now than there was uh, then. And I'm just looking at the instability in the White House, and I don't have great sources for this. It, it's where we all are. You have an isolated president right. who is out of communication right now. And a week is a long time, uh, especially, again, uh, given the number of people who have died from our first conversation to today from this horrible virus. It's a lot of time. So I'm just trying to figure out just how unstable is the situation and how far is this president willing to go? between now and the end of his term to, to make a point uh, about him being a victim rather than just a defeated term president. I mean, I've heard people say, I mean, first of all, the Speaker Pelosi said she had asked for assurance that he wouldn't start a nuclear war. And, and you know, I'm thinking always Nixon is invoked wandering the halls and talking to the paintings. But to me, yeah. the, Trump at this point seems more dangerous than Nixon was at that at that phase. I don't, I don't know if you agree a hundred percent. I mean, for all of Nixon's flaws and great uh, corruption and abuse of power, he still was someone who uh, had grown up, so to speak, or come of age within our mainstream political institutions who believed in the institutions of government, even as he was willing to abuse them. Trump doesn't at all. Uh, he is willing, as we just saw, to go as far as he wants. Uh, and, and that makes it, in my mind, uh, even more perilous situation than we had in the final days of the Nixon presidency. I want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID Calls with Julian Zelizer, and you should check out all of his books, and you can catch his columns on CNN.com. Julian, thanks for spending this time with me today, and stay healthy, and we'll see you uh, hopefully more as we go into 2021. You as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Fabulous conversation and and 
was quite startling to me as I was doing the preparation for the conversation to go back and see that he was the 15th guest on COVID calls. At that time, we were talking about the nominating season, possibility for presidential leadership. So many things that have happened since then were almost unthinkable, uh, and that death count was, is certainly one of them. I'd like to spend some time now reading some obituaries, which ordinarily I would do at the top of the show, but uh, move to the second part of the show today. And I also want to remind folks, I hope you'll join me. We're into our congressional discussions. Uh, Representative Brennan Boyle was not able to join me today. We're going to have him on January 29th, but I'm so pleased that tomorrow I'll have representative of Pennsylvania's 6th Congressional District, Chrissy Houlihan, on COVID calls at 5 o'clock. So please do join me for that. What I'd like to do now is turn to a couple of obituaries. The numbers being as staggering as they are, it's always important that we keep some connection to the humanity of this moment. And the headline is, he dreamed of being a police officer, then was killed by a pro-Trump mob. This was written by Zolan Cano-Youngs and Tracy Tully and appeared in the New York Times today. Dateline is Washington. Brian Sicknick followed his Air National Guard unit to Saudi Arabia, Kyrgyzstan, and a military base in his home state of New Jersey, all in the hopes of one day wearing a police uniform. It was a wish fulfilled more than 10 years ago when he joined the police department tasked with protecting the United States Capitol. Then on Wednesday, pro-Trump rioters attacked that citadel of democracy, overpowered Mr. Sicknick, 42, and struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials. With a bloody gash in his head, Mr. Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. He died on Thursday evening. Ryan is a hero, his brother Ken Sicknick said. That is what we would like people to remember. The death of Officer Sicknick amplified the nation's grief in the wake of the shocking attack on the Capitol by rioters, inflamed by President Trump's calls to stop Congress from counting electoral votes and officially declaring Joseph R. Biden Jr. the winner of November's election. One of those rioters, Ashley Babbitt, also died in the melee, shot by a police officer as she tried to push her way into the heavily protected speaker's lobby just outside the House chamber. In all, five have died since the riot began. This is as of January 11th though three of them were not killed by hostile action. But the beating of an officer brought waves of condolences from lawmakers in both parties still reeling from the event. It also exposed one of the many contradictions of the Trump presidency in his final weeks in the Oval Office. A president who campaigned as a quote-unquote law and order candidate, boasting about his relationships with police unions and demonizing those protesting racist policing, incited a riot that led to the death of a member of the law enforcement community. It's a bunch of nonsense, William J. Bratton, the former New York City police commissioner, said in Mr. Trump's pledges to the police, though he used a stronger word. It was a misappropriation of the term law and order, he said. Justice Department officials said during a news conference on Friday that they were investigating the circumstances of Mr. Sicknick's death, but would not say whether it was a federal murder investigation. 
One official said that felony murder is always in play, but that investigators needed time to complete their work. Trump this summer reframed his presidential campaign around law and order amid the unrest that followed the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, vowing to crack down on rioting and looting. This week, he helped spark those crimes after encouraging his supporters to go to the Capitol to interrupt the Electoral College vote recount. In videos posted to social media, Mr. Trump called the storming of the Capitol a heinous act. His press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, also condemned the violence on behalf of the entire White House. Some in the law enforcement community said the death on Wednesday highlighted Mr. Trump's efforts to use a commitment to public safety to galvanize political support, not necessarily to help the police. As Mr. Trump rallied police officers to his side, his Justice Department also threatened to strip New York City of a federal grant named for a police officer killed in the line of duty when local leaders would not accept his immigration crackdown. He cut funding in the early years of his presidency for domestic terrorism prevention, and his Homeland Security Department was accused last year of suppressing a warning about the rise of violent white nationalists, extremist groups who joined the mob that breached the capital that Mr. Sicknick worked to protect. There hasn't been one thing that he's demonstrated that was supportive of law enforcement, except to shake hands and pat them on the back and tell them no matter what they do, they're fine and right, said Gil Kerlikowski. A former, a former police chief in Seattle and three other cities. Mr. Trump's rhetoric did appeal to many rank and file police officers, and that was evident on Wednesday. As the mob marched to the Capitol, some officers were seen taking selfies with the Trump loyalists. Videos posted on social media captured a group of police officers moving aside barricades to allow the supporters to push ahead to the building, although details remain unclear. Activists said there was a clear double standard from this summer when police forces came down hard on racial justice protesters, even though no police officers were killed during such protests in Washington. Mr. Sicknick apparently did resist the mob, along with many other officers in the Capitol Police. Capitol Police said he was physically engaging with protesters when he was struck. John Krenzel, the mayor of South River, New Jersey, Mr. Sicknick's hometown, said the officer's family was shocked by his death. The fact that he went to work in the morning and suddenly he's not there anymore, he's gone, you don't expect that, Mr. Krenzel said. Mr. Sicknick joined the Air National Guard and was deployed to Saudi Arabia in 1999, according to a statement from the New Jersey chapter of the National Guard. In 2003, he was sent to Kyrgyzstan. He joined the Capitol Police in 2008. He was not shy to share his opinion. He wrote letters to his congressman, Representative Donald S. Byer, Jr., Democrat of Virginia, opposing the impeachment of Mr. Trump, and he advocated gun control. He also sent the officers letters emphasizing the need to protect animals. He spent much of his free time trying to rescue Dotsons, his family said in a statement. Mr. Trump did not comment on Mr. Sicknick's death on Twitter before the company suspended his account, citing the risk of, quote, further incitement of violence, unquote. Congressional leaders in both parties expressed their grief. The question of the connection between what happened 
on January 6th and the broader context of the pandemic is something I just spoke with Julian Zelizer about. It'll take some time for us to understand the connection between those two. I don't think there's any way though to deny, as Professor Zelizer said, that the broader context of this year, the political hatreds, the incitement to violence of the president, and even one might say the dress rehearsal for what happened on January 6th in some of the protests in state capitals, particularly thinking now of Michigan. Those are deeply connected to anti-pandemic control measures. And so in that sense, I believe that what happened on January 6th has to be seen in the broader context of the pandemic and the deaths do as well, by extension. Headline is Capitol Police officer who was on duty during the riot has committed suicide, his family says. This appeared in the Washington Post today, January 11th, by Allison Klein and Rebecca Tan. United States Capitol Police officer Howard Liebengood, the son and namesake of a former Senate sergeant at arms, lobbyist, and Hill staffer, took his own life on Saturday, days after a mob breached the Capitol, a spokesman for his family said Monday. Liebengood, 51, who went by Howie, had been an officer guarding the Capitol since 2005. The agency did not list a cause that announced Liebengood's death, but a spokesman for the family confirmed Monday that he died by suicide and had been on duty at the Capitol on Wednesday. His death is a tragedy that has deprived all of us a dedicated public servant, Barry Pollock, a lawyer representing the Liebengood family, said in a statement. His family has suffered a devastating loss and asks that they be given space to grieve in private. Pollock said that Liebengood is survived by his wife and siblings. Liebengood, who grew up in Fairfax County and was a race car driver before joining the police force, was assigned to the Senate division. A former co-worker said he often worked at the Delaware entrance of the Russell Senate office building, his favorite posting. His death was the second of a Capitol Police officer in the span of a week. On Wednesday, Officer Brian D. Sicknick died of injuries sustained while fighting off the quote-unquote stop the steal mob that had breached the Capitol while lawmakers were certifying the presidential vote. Four civilians also died in the confrontation, one shot by a police officer and three in medical emergencies, and dozens of officers were beaten and injured. We are reeling from the death of Officer Liebengood. Gus Papa Thanasau, head of the Capitol Police Union, said in a statement on Sunday, Officer Liebengood was an example of the selfless service that is the hallmark of the United States Capitol Police. A statement Sunday from the Capitol Police says, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family, friends, and colleagues. Former Senator and Secretary of State John F. Kerry, Democrat from Massachusetts, called the deaths of Sicknick and Liebengood a tragic loss of two patriots who spent their careers protecting the halls of democracy. Friends described Liebengood as humble and reserved and said he shared a love of race car driving with his late father as well as a pull towards the halls of the Capitol. Charlie Ostland, 70, taught Liebengood at James Madison High School in Vienna, Virginia in the 1980s and was his wrestling coach. He remembered Liebengood as a team player who often surprised opponents with his strength and physical talent. Ostlund said the younger Liebengood looked up to his father, Howard S. Liebengood Sr., 
who served from 1981 to 1983 as Senate Sergeant at Arms, charged with ensuring security in the Capitol and Senate buildings, as well as protecting members of the Senate. In a 2003 interview with a motorsports website, the younger Liebengood said his parents were his biggest inspiration. My father has accomplished so much in his professional career in government and the political arena, he said at the time. If I could accomplish an eighth of what he's accomplished, I would be very proud. He is my hero. Liebengood told his interviewer he was involved in the national campaign to stop violence, an effort aimed at middle schoolers. He was a great student and great kid, Ostlund said. This is just so, so sad. Classmate and wrestling teammate of the younger Liebengood, Stu Wilkinson, said his friend's relationship with Washington's political elite dates back to their childhood, though he didn't brag about it. He recalled a school trip to the White House in the 1980s when Secret Service officers took Liebengood aside to have him speak with then-Senate Majority Leader Howard Henry Baker Jr., Republican from Tennessee. Here comes Senator Baker shaking Howie's hand, Wilkinson said. Liebengood was so humble, none of us had any clue how they knew each other. Wilkinson said that when he saw news reports of the Capitol riots on Wednesday, his mind went straight to Liebengood. He scanned the television footage, hoping his friend was all right. He was an outstanding guy, Wilkinson said, a quiet, silent leader. Bill Beck, 80, was a close friend of Liebengood Sr. who watched his son grow up. At the Capitol, he said Sunday, both men strove to engage lawmakers and staffers regardless of political party. On the day of the political on the day of the Capitol attack, Beck said he mailed the younger Liebengood to see how he was doing. He didn't hear the news of his death until Sunday. I knew him his whole life. He was a good human being, Beck said. After everything, this is just, it's tragic. I'd like to read one more story. This isn't an obituary, but it's a story that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's important to remember at this time that we are setting records almost daily, have been this past week on numbers of deaths from COVID-19. Bringing back that perspective is important in the midst of the political struggles that we're having in the United States. We can think about both of those things at the same time. The story is rural Pennsylvania struggles to cope with COVID-19 surge. This appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think it's a remarkable story. I'd like to read it now. This was published on January 9th. Phone rang over the gurgle of embalming fluid as Jeff Burke wearily eyed the corpse of the woman on the gurney, another victim of the coronavirus. She'd have to wait. On the phone, a nurse delivered the news, body pickup needed. Passing the cremation oven, still hot from the morning's use, Burke changed from his plastic embalming apron to a necktie and collared shirt as Sunday football commentators bantered on the television. As he prepared the hearse outside, his phone rang again. Second body pickup needed at a nursing home outside Lewistown. Coronavirus again. It's just scary, said Burke. I don't know if this stuff is different where it hits places, but we're just getting the worst.
the unrelenting phone calls, long hours, the back-to-back funeral ceremonies, the deaths, the virus, the grief have become part of Burke's daily rhythm at the Heller Honstein Funeral Home here in the county seat of rural Mifflin County, Pennsylvania, since early November when things first started getting bad. In April, as the coronavirus gripped portions of southeastern Pennsylvania, western and central counties like Mifflin remained largely unaffected. But within the first weeks of December, it's been the tiny central Pennsylvania county with nearly three dozen COVID-19 deaths this month that has seen the highest coronavirus death rate per capita in the Commonwealth. The first wave of coronavirus cases ravaged urban hubs like Philadelphia and New York City in the spring. Rural Pennsylvania hospitals planned and waited, but many residents bristled at COVID-19 restrictions, not yet seeing the devastation firsthand. Mask wearing was often seen as political and the mitigation efforts frivolous in towns largely untouched by the virus. But now it has arrived. Led by Mifflin, Coronavirus death rates this month are on the rise in most Pennsylvania counties. Blair County, where not a single death was reported in the early April surge, has seen 52 in the first two weeks of December. Westmoreland's total jumped sixfold from 15 to 93. Since inheriting his family's funeral home business in the tiny central Pennsylvania manufacturing borough of Lewistown over a decade ago, Burke, age 45, is no stranger to being knuckle-deep in death before noon. But these days, as the coronavirus wreaks havoc in his rural hometown, north of the Juniata River, things are different. It came out of nowhere, said Burke, whose three funeral homes handle about 25 deaths in a typical November. But last month saw 61. In the first weeks of December, he saw 40 and counting. Three months ago, he said, I was not really concerned about what's happening right now. Our suppliers told us to get ready, and, you know, we got ready that way, but mentally we had no clue this was going to happen. Nowadays, Burke said, he and his brother-in-law spend half an hour rearranging the bodies in the back freezer room to make space for more. The coroner keeps calling, offering a refrigeration truck to hold the corpses. I pray to God we don't have to bring one in, he said. 70 miles west of Lewistown, Connemaw Nason Medical Center sits among church steeples and red barns in Roaring Spring, Blair County, a 45-bed rural hospital used to the steady rhythms of the flu and broken bones. The hospital, about 55 miles south of State College, even leases some of its land to local farmers. Soybeans are planted to the north of the hospital, said Timothy Harklerod, the hospital's CEO. It's corn to the south. In the first two weeks of April, the county reported no COVID-19 deaths, but it didn't last. Within the first two weeks of December, 52 people have died of the virus there. Hospital averaged about 14 overnight patients a day pre-coronavirus in 2019. For the last two months, the average jumped to 30. According to the state's data, the first confirmed death in Blair County happened on May 12th. By that date, Philadelphia had already endured more than 1,250 deaths. Still, Across the state, hospitals prepared for the rush, canceling elective surgeries, getting as much PPE as possible, and turning to telehealth appointments instead of inpatient visits. But as the pandemic raged elsewhere, some questioned virus mitigation measures, chalking mask wearing and restaurant and gym closures up to politics as the 2020 election approached. 
there's people who don't know anymore who has the virus here and they think the media has got it blown out of proportion, said Brian Sipes, who runs a roadside barbecue stand down the street from Connemon Nason, where medical staff brace for, brace for Christmas in the COVID-19 ward. There's people who got it and recovered and 85-year-old people who have lung issues and got it and they died. Sipes said his roadside business has picked up during the pandemic, but it hasn't made up for money he's lost. Most of my business was catering. All of that was canceled, he said. Sipes said he does not wear a mask. I just can't, he said. Dawn Green, a dental assistant who lives in Hollidaysburg, said she never left the house without a mask on since March. She still contracted COVID-19, heading to the emergency room on Thanksgiving. She said she's still dealing with ramifications from the virus. Green, who voted for President Donald Trump, said she was frustrated at how divisive and symbolic masks became in her area. Everybody thinks it's their freedoms being taken away and things like that, Green, age 43, said. But trust me, if you got as sick as I was, you would wear a mask. You would get it. I get very upset when I hear people downplay it. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Of the 150 deaths in Blair, 114 were in November and December. In Westmoreland County, which saw 15 deaths in early April compared to 93 in the first few weeks of December, attitudes towards the virus are similarly mixed as some officials rail against Governor Tom Wolf's temporary restrictions limiting indoor dining and gatherings. Still, Scottsdale funeral home owner Frank Caper says he's seen changing outlooks on the virus after people or their families have been personally impacted. There were those who said, you know, this is political. After the election, it's going to go away. And I said, no, I don't think so. You're fooling yourself into this. This COVID-19 is real, said Caper, president of the Pennsylvania Funeral Directors Association and director of his family's funeral home for the last 40 years. Though he watched the virus take hold in Harrisburg, Philadelphia, and New Jersey in the spring, I never even imagined that we would get bombarded, he said. The only thing I can say to people now is use your mask wherever you go and stay safe, he said. It's the wearing of masks and other mitigation efforts employed in Philadelphia, like limiting indoor dining and gatherings, that Dr. Deborah Bogan, director of the Allegheny County Department of Health, encouraged the residents to emulate during a news conference. Allegheny County, currently a hotbed for cases in the Commonwealth, saw 46 fatalities in the first weeks of April and 217 within the first weeks of December, an increase mainly attributed to community spread. Bogan said. Philadelphia saw 173 deaths in the first weeks of December, down from 354 in early April. Like many public health officials around the state, Bogan encouraged the county to stay firm in mitigating the spread while they wait their turn for a vaccine, calling it the light at the end of the tunnel we've all been looking for and hoping for these last number of months. At Connemaw Nason, employees were receiving their first doses of the vaccine and Harkler Road said many were uneasy about the coming holidays and how it would affect patients. At times, when COVID-19 positive patients had similar timelines and symptoms, the hospital would place two in one room. He tried to give them someone to talk to, he said. Harkler Road said he believes there was COVID-19 fatigue in rural areas that eventually residents simply began to gather again. The hospital saw spikes after July 4th, Labor Day, and Thanksgiving and anticipates one after Christmas. There's typically very few patients and staff here on Christmas, he said. Nine months into the pandemic and state-mandated coronavirus restrictions, no matter how many times Caper has to tell grieving families that only 10 people may attend an indoor funeral ceremony, the pain is always fresh. 
I know most of my families and I know them very well, he said, and it's difficult for me to sit on the other side of the desk and tell them that this is what we have to do. They say, what about our grandchildren? It's tough. The work is hard and emotionally taxing, said Burke, the funeral home director in Mifflin, and it's hardest when he has to cremate or embalm a friend or acquaintance from his hometown where everybody knows everybody. But he's taken just two days off in the last two months. Despite a recent foot of snow, despite the stress arriving at his office before the sun comes up, he said he wouldn't quit now, that he owes it to the people in the borough to give them the send-offs they deserve. We're just trying to do what's right, you know, he said. We work hard so we can sleep well at night. The headline was, Rural Pennsylvania Struggles to Cope with COVID-19 Surge. Appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer and was written by Una Gooden-Smith, Jason Nark, Dylan Purcell, and Tim Ty. That wraps it up for COVID calls today. I want to thank Julian Zelizer for appearing uh, on the first half of the program and want to remind you that you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. The rest of this week, we'll be having congressional conversations. Uh, tomorrow, I'll be talking with Representative Chrissy Houlihan. Please join me on Thursday when I talk to Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.